Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't think I need to introduce Dr. Flippin, because Deacon Sabatino did that last week. So without further ado, Dr. Flippin. Oh, welcome back. And I think because of the inherent difficulty of philosophy in general and of going over philosophical problems, a bit of review is in order and perhaps a bit of enlarging um, on some of what I went over last week um, before we come back and argue for um, our conclusion. The conclusion I'm going to argue for is that if we're going to understand the central problem of epistemology, which is how any act of knowing, either of the senses or of the intellect, literally lays hold of the object that we are all convinced that it lays hold of, namely real things in the world around us, we need to get into a bit of metaphysics and explain how, as I think I said last week, but didn't go any further, we need to explain how any form or likeness existing in a way that's not natural to it to exist naturally points to itself in the way that it's natural to it to exist. Now, give you try to give you more examples of that, but this is the direction that we're headed in. Okay, um, to back up a little bit. Um, I think I, I might have only mentioned St. Thomas's name once last week, and that may have bothered um, some people. Everything I said was strictly domestic, but I just didn't bring Thomas's name up. Um, and we will be getting into a bit of a bit a bit more into material today that is uniquely or more peculiarly domestic. St. Thomas is the only one that I know who gives a clear explanation of how an act of knowing um, points to, it puts us in contact with the real things that we are convinced that we know. But let's back up a minute. I'm glad there's a piece of chalk up here. Um, a rough rundown on the different powers of knowing, just to remind you that knowing is a very broad term, very general term, can refer to any act of any one of your external senses, can refer to any act of any one of your internal sense powers, and it can refer to any act of the intellect. Okay? All of these are referred to loosely as acts of knowing or cognitive acts from the Latin um, cognoscere, to know, but the, the, the notion of knowing applies to any sense power as well as to the intellect. So, we've got the five external senses. And I'll just list them. Sight, hearing, smell, 
taste, and touch. And when some psychologists want to distinguish more external senses or more senses than these five, what they are doing is breaking up this last sense, touch, the sense of touch often gets subdivided into a number of different distinct senses. Um, but Aristotle and St. Thomas a, a long time ago recognized that this was possible because among all of the senses, the sense of touch has a greater variety to its objects. So if you want to try to subdivide it into specific senses, you can. But as one modern psychologist wrote, you can also take all the different subdivisions of touch and treat them generally as modes or manifestations of touch. So he said there's nothing wrong with the external division of the senses into these five. Okay? These feed into, um, successively, four different internal sense powers. Um, the first one is a little misleadingly named for our purposes. It's usually called the common sense. Some modern thinkers would prefer to rename it because we use the word common sense in the sense of just having sane and sound knowledge. Um, but this is a specific internal sense power. So it's also called the unitive sense. And it is also called the central or the central sense. Okay? This is all one power, different names, one power. All this first of the four internal sense powers does is gather together the different information coming in through these different sense powers so that you are internally aware of what you are seeing is the same thing as what you're hearing, the same thing as what you might be smelling or touching. Okay? The central internal sense power simply collects, unifies this. It apprehends what is common to all of these different external sense powers as well as seeing what distinguishes them. And it's in a central position. It's like a central clearinghouse where it gathers together all this different information. Okay? And then this power simply dumps uh, what it has unified into the first of the two um, storehouses uh, called the imagination. And everybody is familiar with this. Okay? The imagination is nothing other than the storehouse of the external senses, okay? It's the storehouse of the external senses. Then because we have to explain the way in which animals as well as ourselves as human beings, especially when we're very young before reason has developed in us, um, because we share in common with the animals the ability to make instinctive judgments about sensible things as being useful for us or harmful to us. For example, the sheep sees the wolf, recognizes instinctively that this is not something to chummy uh, around with or to get too close to. Um, the bird sees some piece of straw on the ground. It instinctively judges that's something useful for building a nest. And if it's the right time of year, it picks it up to build a nest out of it. So because of that, we have to add this third internal sense power, which in animals is called the estimative sense. And in human beings, gets a, a different name because it acts in human beings in close conjunction with the intellect. So we can say, or the cogitative students hate this word. The cogitative sense. They hate this word because it's too close to cognitive. And so they wind up calling it the cognitive sense. I'm going, wait a minute. 
They're all cognitive senses. I mean, the, every power, every power of knowing you has, have is a cognitive power. All cognitive means is a power to know, you know, the ability to know. So it's called the cogitative sense. Maybe the estimative is easier to hang on to because it calls to mind um, an instinctive estimate of something as useful or harmful. Okay? An, ins an instinctive judgment whereby we estimate the usefulness or the harmfulness of something. And then finally, we have what's called the memory. Okay? The memory is the storehouse of the estimative or cogitative sense. Okay? So the, the memory is distinct from the imagination because the imagination has nothing to do with any awareness of things as useful or harmful that gets determined by this power, and this power dumps its contents into the memory. So the memory is a memory of things as in time, and the memory is also our um, recollection of things as useful or harmful. Okay? So we have two distinct storehouses, and then the intellect derives, draws its knowledge from the senses. We're aware of the fact that our intellectual knowledge depends on our sense knowledge. If someone wants to gain a deeper intellectual understanding of some aspect of reality, some kind of thing in reality, he has to go out and gain sensible experience of that part of reality, or he has to sit down and read other people's reports of their sensible experience, their experience through the senses of some part of reality. So the intellect is going to depend on these senses, and since these are the two storehouses, the intellect is going to depend in a particular way on one or the other of these two storehouses. Usually, if we're talking about our interest in gaining just theoretical or speculative knowledge, not practical knowledge, just we're just curious to understand reality. Thomas is arguing that the intellect is interacting in particular with the imagination. Okay? Um, so there's some kind of interaction between these two powers that goes on. Now, very quickly, this is all part of Thomistic epistemology, but it's not the main problem we're interested in. This is just background information, uh, because I did refer to these powers last week, but I did not go into them in any detail. Because the sense powers cannot act directly on the intellect, I'm not going into why, that would take too long, uh, because the sense powers cannot directly act on the intellect, these are all material, these sense powers are all rooted in distinct parts of the body, um, the intellect is a strictly immaterial power. The intellect has to take its information itself from these sense powers. And because one and the same thing can't be both passive and active at the same time and in the same way, Aristotle realized, Thomas agrees with him completely, that we need two powers of the intellect to explain how the intellect activates itself. It's got to be active in order to reach out and grasp something from the level of the senses. It has to be passive in order to receive what it has reached out and grasped. So um, the intellect gets distinguished into the active and the possible intellects. Okay? Active intellect and the possible intellect. The possible intellect is the primary of the two in the sense it is the one that receives and contains all intellectual knowledge. All the active intellect does is make sure that what is contained in the imagination in the form of individual images of um, individual material things in the world around us gets translated into a more abstract general form and imposed on the possible intellect. 
So, for example, you might have here, um, in your imagination, a, an image. You have an image of a frog, okay? of a particular frog, drawn from your sense experience, what it looks like, what it sounds like, if you picked it up, what it feels like. Probably not going to get much of what it smells like. They don't smell too strongly. Um, you've got an image of a particular frog in your imagination. You might have a number of them there if you've gained a lot of experience about frogs. What the active intellect is doing is, in a sense, um, taking a, a very abstract, general um, picture of what it is to be a frog. I hate to use the word picture, but I, I can't think of any simpler way to put it. Um, and imposing on the possible intellect, for example, what it is to be um, a being, because this is a being, what it is to be a thing, what it is to be something, what it is to be a living thing, and eventually, the more you gain specific but still general intellectual knowledge, you come to have a clear image of what it is to be a frog, specifically. Okay? We know that our intellectual knowledge starts off in a very general way. Just try teaching a little kid um, <clears throat> to distinguish a, a cat from every other four-legged animal. Um, if he's young enough, all he's going to pick up from you is um, something with four legs that moves. Um, and he'll point to a cow and go, cat. Point to a dog and go, cat. Point anything with four legs and go, cat. Why? Because his, the, the first intellectual knowledge that we gain tends to be very, very abstract, very general. And only over time do we make it more and more specific, more and more tailored to exactly what it is we're trying to know. Okay? Enough of that. Um, this is all fun. Uh, now what we have to remind ourselves of is this. The problem we're really dealing with is whether you're using your power of sight to see or your power of hearing to hear or your power of smelling to smell, to taste, to touch, whether you're imagining, remembering something, making some instinctive judgment about something's being useful or harmful, or whether you're gaining intellectual knowledge, the objects of all of these powers of knowing are real beings. Not ideas in your mind, not sensations in your mind, not something going on in your brain, but real things. Okay? That's what I said last time is the central problem in the theory of knowledge. It's the central problem of epistemology. How do I explain how, by means of something going on within me, in one of these powers of knowing, how do I, how do I explain how, by means of an act being performed within me by one of these powers of knowing, I reach out, I reach out and lay hold of real things in the world around me? How? Now, once you get into modern philosophy, a lot of persons try to convince you that you don't know real things. You're just knowing what's in your own mind. And I said last time, and I'm going to repeat it and go over it just a little bit, there's a, a famous 20th century thinker named Bertrand Russell who tried to use modern science, specifically physics, to convince us that we all are knowing literally what's going on in our own brains and nothing else. Okay? And uh, I will quickly remind you of how his argument works so that you can see the challenge you're faced with. Either you go with Bertrand Russell's use, I would say misuse, of modern science in his attempt to convince you that all you literally know is what's in your own 
brain, or you hold fast to your common human conviction or your common human experience of knowing real things, and you use that same physics, that same science that Bertrand Russell used in a different way. Okay? Here's how Bertrand Russell argued. One, physics tells us that it takes time for light and sound to reach us from things happening around us. You're, you're perfectly aware of this, at least with respect to hearing, when it comes to lightning. Don't we calculate how far away a lightning flash is by counting as soon as we see the lightning flash? 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. Try to figure out how many miles away the lightning flash is. When do we stop counting? When we hear the thunder. Why? Because it takes sound more time to travel through the atmosphere and reach us than it takes light. But, Bertrand Russell said, remember, no matter how fast light is, it still takes time. So both sound, both light, take time to reach us. Now, the first step of his argument is, we just went over this, physics tells us that it takes time for light and sound to reach us from things happening around us. Okay? Second step in the argument, let us assume you always got to watch out for assumptions. Let us assume that what I am seeing or hearing must exist at the exact same time as my acts of seeing and my acts of hearing. Let's assume that, he says. So, okay, let's see where he's going to go with this. Well, he says, if that's the case, if you accept my assumption, then you cannot possibly be seeing lightning occurring some miles away from you. You cannot possibly be hearing thunder as generated by that lightning coming from miles away from you. If what you are literally seeing and hearing must exist at the exact same moment as your act of seeing and your act of hearing, then since Here's this flash of lightning going through the sky. Here you are over here. We better make you a little bigger because of what I need to do to you. <laughs> there you go. It takes the light time to go through the air, atmosphere, whatever, reach your eye. Then, is seeing done? No. Um, seeing's not complete until the nerves which connect your sight with some part of your brain get to that part of the brain and Bertrand Russell says finally that's the point at which your act of seeing occurs okay? only when the light has not only traveled and taken some time a little time but some time to travel from the lightning to your eye and then the electrochemical impulses have taken some time to get to that point in your brain where they terminate. Bertrand Russell says at that point, at that point, we can say that's the moment you were actually seeing. Now, what are you seeing at that moment? If what you're seeing must exist at the same exact moment that you're seeing it, then what you're seeing must be the effect right there at that point in your brain of that light that left whatever it is outside, because you can't see that. You can't see that thing out there. All you can literally see, if you agree with his argument, is the effect of that as it finally terminates at some point in your brain. If you accept the assumption that what you see has to exist at the exact same moment as your act of seeing, then what you're seeing, Bertrand Russell says, is something going on in your brain. Okay. Now, the alternative to this is you accept what modern physics says about the time that it takes light and sound to travel, but you reject his assumption. It's that assumption that gets you into trouble. 
And if you reject that assumption, like I told you last week, what you have to accept is, if you're going to say, I see that real flash of lightning in the sky, what you have to accept is, even though at a given moment in time you're performing an act of seeing, because it took a little bit of time for the light to get from the lightning flash to your eye, and it took a little bit of time for the transmission to the brain, what you have to accept is that you're looking into the past. You've got a present image in your brain of something that began a fraction of a second ago. Okay? Now, most of us don't care about fractions of a second. So we're willing to say that's close enough to being simultaneous. Doesn't bother me in the slightest. Bertrand Russell says, okay, let's make the problem a little more acute. Let's say you're not looking at a flash of lightning, the light from which takes only a fraction of a second to get to you. He says, let's say you're looking at a super, uh, let's say you're looking at some body uh, in the heavens, light years away from you, and you're watching this thing blow up, okay? Now, either you say, with Bertrand Russell, that I am literally seeing only something that exists in my brain at the exact same moment that I'm performing the act of seeing, or you keep hold of your conviction that I see, what I see is a real thing, and you have to admit that you are looking into the past because if you continue on with the laws of physics, by the time the light from this star gets to you and gets to some point in the middle of your brain, who cares where it is, this thing has been exploding, flying apart into different bits and pieces for years, a number of years. So that if you were able to travel like an angel instantaneously. You go, I want to be right there, now, where that, where that star is. Get as close to it as I can. You would see something very different from what you're seeing right here and now on Earth. So li literally, what you have to accept is when you see and hear things in the world around you, you are experiencing right here and now something that happened uh, a little bit of time ago. If that bothers you, then you might have to wind up agreeing with, with Bertrand Russell that you can see nothing going on outside of you at all. All you can literally see is what's going on in your own brain. Okay? The problem is, and Bertrand Russell literally drew that conclusion. He adopted that conclusion. All any of us see, he says, is what's going on in our brain. If that's true, then tell me, how can any scientist tell me anything about the external world? He is stuck in the middle of his brain the same as the rest of us are. How does he know about the different bodies inhabiting the universe and relations between them if he is like I am, like you are, like we all are, literally stuck apprehending, knowing only what's going on in the middle of our brains? Okay? So I'm all for holding on to common human conviction and saying whatever representation I have in the middle of my brain right here and now, even though it's a representation of something that happened a fraction of a second ago, I'm holding on to my conviction that it's a real thing outside of me that I'm seeing or knowing, not what is literally going on in my brain. Okay? We, we did that last week. And the question was, okay, um, how does all this work? Um, how do we explain what's going on? So just recall to mind the many common everyday experiences that we have of knowing one thing in and through a representation of it. Okay? You watch a program, a documentary on TV, you're watching literally the TV, but you, you take yourself to be watching what's represented on TV. So if you sit down to watch a football game, and they say, this is a live transmission. We're watching a football game going on right now. You say to yourself with Bertrand Russell, no, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm watching something going on, you know, a fraction of a second ago. 
Uh, I'm not up with the, I'm, I'm not completely up to the minute on what's going on on the field because it takes time for the trend, for the, the light to get, you know, through all the different transmitters, the signals to be sent through the air to get to my TV, be reproduced on my TV screen. I'm literally seeing what's going on, you know, just a little bit prior to what I'm literally looking at. Most of us don't care. It's, it's not like literally sitting down and watching a documentary of something that happened in the 1930s, but it's basically the same kind of thing. It's basically the same kind of thing. So if you're not bothered by that, which I'm not bothered by, then we come back to our original problem. We know things through representations of them day in and day out. If you sit down and listen to a good recording of some piece of music you like, you say, listen to that man play that guitar. You go, no, you're just listening to a DV, DVD or CD or whatever it is, sending, sending signals through your speakers and causing them to vibrate and make noise. No, 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 uh, that's so-and-so playing the guitar and boy, is he ever good at it. You go, I'm sorry, but he's dead. He, 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 he died 15 years ago. You can't be listening to him play the guitar. But I am listening to so-and-so play a guitar. That recording caught and now holds and now presents to me, represents to me something that happened in the past. I am now listening to so-and-so playing the guitar 15 years ago. Okay? And we, we see ourselves in the mirror. It takes a little bit of time for the light to go back and forth from um, the mirror to your eye. Um, we see people in photographs. Um, we use all kinds of video and audio recordings. Even listening to somebody on the telephone is listening to a reproduction, the reproduction of a sound, someone's voice. Um, we're able to make the reproduction pretty accurate, but we accept reproductions of things as means of knowing real things. Okay? We accept knowing things in and through reproductions day in and day out. So all we're doing is saying the same kind of knowing something through a reproduction of it, through a representation of it, goes on every time we see, hear, smell, taste, imagine, or intellectually know something because things have to be reproduced, represented literally in your sight, in your hearing, in your different senses, external and internal, and in your intellect in order to unite the act of knowing in you to those really distinct things. Okay? okay, we're back to where we left off last week. What we want to know is more about how does it work? How does a reproduction, how does a representation, how does a likeness, whether visual or audio or if any, any other kind of likeness, how does it direct my attention away from itself to the thing of which it is a likeness? How does that work? Can we get into it any deeper and make more sense out of it? And the answer is, yes, we can get into it more deeply. We can make more sense out of it, but it, it gets us into what is called metaphysics. Epistemology, according to St. Thomas, is just part of metaphysics. So when we're talking about epistemology, we are already doing a bit of metaphysics. but let me give you the answer that we're heading towards and then back up and fill in more details, okay? Okay, here's the answer we're, we're heading for. Whenever you know something through a likeness or a representation of it, that likeness or that representation is in some way formally not materially, but formally, like the thing that it's representing, like the thing that you're knowing through it. For example, you look at yourself in the mirror, you see a formal, not a material likeness of yourself in the mirror. What does that mean? The mirror is made out of glass, different kind of matter than you're made out of. So the, 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 the matter in which the likeness of yourself exists is very different materially than you are. So the likeness in the mirror is not a material likeness, but, but we usually call it a formal likeness. Okay? Something of what makes me to be actually the way I am, which we call 
form, that by which a thing is actually what it is, 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 is called the form of it. Uh, something of what actually makes me to be what I am is literally in that mirror. And because form that exists in a way that's not natural to it exist, to exist, always points to itself in the way that it is natural to it to exist, a likeness always points us to the original. Let me give you a very homely example of this, which I'm sure everyone can relate to. Everyone dreams. Everyone dreams. And in a dream, there are images, literally, in your imagination that you are experiencing. But unlike when you're awake, you're not aware that those images in your imagination are only in your imagination and don't correspond to anything literally outside you. When you are asleep, you take the images, the likenesses, the representations of things that are in your imagination, you take them for real things. Otherwise, no one would ever get frightened by a nightmare. Who would get frightened by an image in your imagination? No, you take it for a real thing. Like Calvin and Calvin and Hobbes. Dad, there's a monster under my bed. Really, I, whether he was dreaming or not, he's, he's not saying, Dad, I'm imagining a monster under my bed. No, he says, Dad, there's a monster under my bed. Calvin, you were just dreaming. Go back to sleep, have a little milk, cookies, whatever, hug the tiger, go back to sleep, maybe your dreams will change. We take the images in our dreams for real things. What? Why? What? Why? Because those images, those representations in your dreams are some kind of formal likeness of the things of which you are dreaming. And because it's not natural for a monster to exist only in your imagination, it's more natural for a monster to exist materially in and of himself. Um, uh, you, you naturally, when you dream, you naturally treat that image in your imagination as if it were the real thing. That is, you take the form, the likeness, the representation in the imagination as having the being that naturally belongs to it, which is that of a real substance. A real substantial monster, not just an idea, a sensation, an image in your imagination. Okay? In the same way, when you look at yourself in the mirror, you don't say, oh, look at that nice way in which light is reflecting off the mirror. Um, boy, that image, that likeness in the mirror, psh, it doesn't look too good. Uh, no, you say, that's me, <clears throat> and I don't look too good. You take the image for yourself because that's your image. That's your image. Where does that form that's in the mirror naturally exist? Not in the mirror, not in glass. That's a form of a human being. It doesn't naturally exist in glass. It naturally exists in flesh and blood, and it's pointing towards you. So when you look at that form, you naturally take it as having the being that it naturally has, which means you say, I'm looking at myself in the mirror. Okay? You, we, we naturally, we always take a likeness for the real thing. We can separate the two, obviously, but our natural tendency is to take any formal likeness for the real thing. Why? Why does it work that way? Well, when we analyze, this is an analysis, a metaphysical analysis of a, a being. We're going to take a being apart into the, it, metaphysically into um, matter form and active existing and try to explain something of how because of the way form is related to the active existing a likeness in any one of your powers of knowing automatically points to the form which is the original of that likeness um, because that's the active being the active existing that that form calls for okay so we can take any anything you like, frog, dog, tree, cat, 
And if we analyze it metaphysically, we first distinguish it into what it is versus that it is. So we take a particular material being. For example, we'll go back to the frog. We can distinguish this frog into what it is and that it is. Okay? We can imagine all kinds of things according to what they are, but acknowledge that they have no being. Like, you can imagine, you know, having $5,000 in your wallet. That's, there's a whatness to that. You know, what are you thinking about? $5,000 in my wallet? Is it really there? No. No, it's not really there, but I can understand what it is, and I can sure wish that it was there. So we distinguish what something is from whether it exists. So that it is, or whether it actually exists. We can distinguish these two. And then when we analyze this a little further, what something is, we follow, and Thomas certainly follows, Aristotle's breaking this down. What something is, is called um, philosophically its essence or its nature. We can distinguish what a thing is into its material and formal components, okay? Or just matter and form. Where do these two notions come from? Matter and form come from an analysis of change. Okay? They come from an analysis of change. Whenever Aristotle argued, whenever anything changes, we can understand change in the most general sense by saying matter is just what underlies a change. Form is what makes the beginning and the end of the change different from one another. Okay? Most of the changes that we're familiar with are accidental changes. So in most changes, the matter, let's take an example of a change. For example, the frog hops into the water from a lily pad. Okay? What kind of a change is this? It's a change of place. It goes from being on a lily pad to being into the water. How did he get there? He jumped. Uh, but all we're interested in is the change of place. What's the matter, the material that underlies this particular change? The frog, as such, is the subject of the change. What's the formal aspects of the change? In this case, it's first, go, it's going from, um, what, what, he, what he stopped formally being was uh, on the lily pad. This is what went away. This is the way of being, a, a way of having being. Uh, this dropped out, and he came to be in the water. Okay? Where a thing is, is part of what it actually is. It's an accidental part of what it actually is, but it's still a part of what it is. Makes a big difference to you when you're at the zoo, whether you are outside the bars of the tiger's cage or inside the bars of the tiger's cage. Just a couple of feet, but it makes a big difference to you and your accidental and probably substantial well-being uh, whether you're you know, two feet one side or two feet the other side. So where something is is part of what it is. Okay? Part, of its, part of what it is and part of its being. But it's just an accidental part. An easier example, perhaps, to understand would be, let's say um, you don't think you look too good. The doctor told you you need more sun. Uh, is sun sun's good for you. So now... Uh, a human being is going to be the subject of change. And I go um, from being sickly pale to being tanned. This is easier for us to understand. I am the subject of the change, once again. 
I'm the matter, I'm what underlies the change, and the form I lost, I lost the form of being pale, and I gained the form of tan, or being tan. Or, this gets a little closer to helping us with the kinds of examples we're thinking about in trying to know things because we ordinarily associate form most of all with shape. Let's say I go from being rotund to being slim of shape. We'll ignore the weight change. Everybody says, okay, I know, uh, I'm sorry, I, I know what those are. Those are two different forms, literally shapes. But form is a very general term. All it means is any actually determinate way of being. Being pale, being intelligent, being ignorant, being sickly, being healthy, being fat, being slim, being sitting, being standing. Any actual way of being is a form of being. Okay, And when we gain knowledge from things in the world around us, we're knowing these subjects through the collection of their forms. Is it actually tan? Is it actually pale? Is it actually rotund? Is it actually slim? How tall is it? How short is it? These are all forms of being, accidental forms of being. Okay. Now, matter is always related to form. Matter is always related to form as potency to act. Let's say we're talking about, for example, I as a person. What am I? What forms of being am I in potency to? Well, I'm in potency to all kinds of forms of being. Um, having more knowledge, being in a plane, being tan, being sickly, healthy, being seated, being related as a grandfather to a new child. All of these are forms of being that I can take on that can determine me to be actually what I am. And you might say, well, that's all we need. It's just matter and form to analyze things into what they are. But the problem is, St. Thomas says, it's not enough to have what something is or an essence or a nature. An essence, a nature, what something is, is just a possible way of having being. All the, all the individual things that exist, all the kinds of things that exist, pre-existed before creation in the mind of God. They all existed there, not in the way natural to themselves, but in the way in which anything can pre-exist in the mind of someone who can make it. Okay? All those possible forms of being, substantial forms of being, all these accidental forms of being, they all existed there, not actually in themselves, but only actually in the mind of God. They existed actually by God's thinking of them, but they only ex existed potentially in themselves. Okay? So you can say, I like the house in which I live, but I like the house that only exists in potency even better. In other words, there's this mansion that I've been dreaming of building for years, and it doesn't actually exist, but it could exist, and it's in my mind, and I could make it, or I could earn the money, I could... I could earn the money to have someone build it. It could actually exist. So we have to distinguish what something is. For example, the mansion in which you could exist but don't actually exist from the being of the thing. And Thomas says we have to distinguish not just matter and form as parts of what a thing is. We have to distinguish what a thing is itself from whether it actually exists. And these two are also related as potency to act. When a thing actually exists, this is the 
This is what is most actual about the thing. Not the form. Form, you can think of all kinds of forms of being, but they don't actually exist except in your mind. They act, they would actually exist in the most complete sense if you would give them their own being. For example, you think of the mansion that you could have. It exists actually in your mind. You might think of it day in, day out, but when you have it built, it now not only exists actually merely in your mind and only potentially in itself, it actually exists in itself. Okay? Now, of these two parts, matter and form, the more important of the two, for our purposes, is the form. If what a thing is is just a possible way of having being, the form which makes the thing to be actually what it is, this too is related to being, to existence, as potency to act. Okay? So, all I'm saying, to go back to the conclusion that I've repeated once or twice, and now I'm going to repeat it in a somewhat different way, when a form, for example, let's take the easiest form to think of, when a form, for example, the shape of a bird that is a predator exists in my power of sight. When this form, when, when, when this form, which is a, let's say it's just a shape, when it exists in my power of sight, because the form, since any form by itself is a potency to exist by itself. When this form exists in my power of sight, because the form of its very nature is a potency to have being in a certain way by itself, this form as it exists in my sight, intellect, any old power, but when it exists in my sight, it naturally points to itself. The form in my sight naturally points to the same form as it exists in itself naturally. In the same way that if you have a mirror, we have the shape of some monster. And I'm standing looking in the mirror, and I know that's not me. I take this shape to naturally stand for the real monster over here, as it exists in itself. Or if this is the image of a bird. I, I'm not very good at drawing um, things. Whee! Here's a bird. <laughs> it, naturally, it naturally points to a real bird. Okay? Why? Why does this image in a mirror, picture, painting, shape of a bird in my power of sight, why, is it, why does it point to the real bird? Because any form as form is a potency to exist. And when it exists in the way that it's not natural for it to exist, the form still, in a sense, directs your attention, points to itself as it naturally exists, to the way it has being by itself naturally, of its very nature. Okay? That's just the way it works, and all I've tried to do is to try to give you some metaphysical explanation of why it exists that way, but I'm afraid uh, eh, I might not have been too successful. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is tough stuff. We're all familiar with the way in which any reproduction, any image, uh, points to the original thing the metaphysical explanation of that comes down to the fact that form taken just as form is simply a possible way of having being. And when that form exists in the mind, it naturally points to itself as it would exist in itself, whether it does or not. When it actually does exist in itself, that's how we explain our ability to know real things through formal likenesses of them in our powers of knowing, when you have a form in your imagination of something that doesn't exist in itself, 
you still treat it as if it existed in itself. See? And that's why when you dream, and it's a bad dream, you get frightened. You're not frightened of mere images flitting around in your imagination. You're frightened because you're taking those formal likenesses, those images, as representations of real things. As something having that likeness, having that form in and of itself with a being natural to it. That's just the way reality works. Okay? And that's it. Thank you so much, Dr. Flippin. As is customary, we'll take a very brief break. I know I have some questions. So <laughs> if you have any questions, Dr. My question is, why was St. Thomas into this field? Was he using it to reason that there is a God or some connection? Why was he involved in this concept? Why? It, it was a natural part of philosophy. Understanding, knowing, how knowing works had been a part of philosophy since the very beginning. And people had started to see, raise certain problems about it. Uh, Thomas managed to treat just about every aspect of reality, even though he's primarily a theologian. He was a philosopher in the service of doing theology. But the better the philosopher you are, the better you are able to use that natural knowledge to uh, plumb the depths of revelation. And just like St. Augustine, St. Thomas was partly interested in understanding the details about knowledge because we are made in the image and likeness of God, and the more we know ourselves as knowing and willing beings, the more we can say something halfway intelligible about God. That's what I thought it was sort of leading to. Mm -hmm. We can take ourselves and sort of reach out and make some conclusions about what God might be. But still, people did raise all kinds of, of philosophical problems that often had theological ramifications, and if you didn't come up with a correct philosophical understanding of something, someone could hold some slightly erroneous view about God or the relationship between God and, 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 and the world. So it was to St. Thomas's advantage to have a complete metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of nature, ethics, political theory, uh, the, the works. Uh, 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 what, what, he, what he never really went into, for example, was what we would call now the philosophy of art and, and, and some things like that, even though he was himself uh, an, an artist. He composed some wonderfully beautiful hymns, uh, but he, he didn't philosophize about art and beauty. Thank you, Dr. Yeah. Flippen. Uh, you briefly started to touch on this. What are the ramifications for a Catholic faith uh, if we have an incorrect epistemology, um, are there any particular heresies, for instance, that have really flowed because of an incorrect epistemological view? Oh, gosh. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say about, about that uh, specifically. I don't know enough about all the different heresies to compare them with how you could get into them. There's, there's a number of different ways you could get in, into the different heresies. The early heresies all had to do with understanding person, nature, relating person and nature and existence correctly to one another rather than having to do with, 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 with knowledge as, as, as such. You know, the whole problem about how, how can you have three persons in one uh, God, one being, um, and how can you have two natures, one of those persons, uh, as, as we have in Christ, um, but this... This doesn't directly bear on, on epistemology. But when St. Thomas and St. Augustine tried to understand God, God as an intellectual being, God as a willing being, um, and uh, tried to understand perhaps something about the Trinity, uh, there, 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 there was always an incentive to, to examine human nature more carefully or more, or, or more closely. But how... An, a particular error in epistemology might lead into a particular heresy. I, that's not my field. Sorry. I'm a limited being. 
Assuming that uh, we want to pursue a, a further independent study, can you recommend uh, texts or publications that we may read? Should we go back to Aristotle or an Aquinas, or, or are there more layman-friendly uh, texts that will ease the transition uh, to a higher level of uh, understanding? There are some texts that try to make the thought of St. Thomas um, much more available at an introductory level. A, a decent one, but it's not at a real elementary level is Etienne uh, Gilson's uh, Christian philosophy of St. Thomas uh, Aquinas. Like I said, and the book is the, the Christian philosophy of, of, of St. Thomas Aquinas. This is a, a comprehensive text. There are a lot of there are a lot of textbooks giving you a rundown on the thought of St. Thomas. I don't, I don't know what to tell you there. Different people, though, have tried to popularize the thought of St. Thomas. But even when they do, even when they do, it seems to me that people rarely try to popularize this particular topic of epistemology. Like one of my teachers in graduate school said, that stuff's impossible. <laughs> but... It's something that I fell in love with. And so if I had more time you know, to go through more metaphysical details, I could perhaps uh, give you a better indication of the truth of what I'm saying. But even after a semester, a lot of students go, I'm not sure what we studied. <laughs> there might be um, a suggestion here, Peter Kreef wrote a book called A Summa the Summa, uh -huh. and within that there's a short chapter on epistemology and he gives extensive notes uh -huh. on Aquinas's. So that, yeah, Peter I Kreef, read that, that was pretty easy. Yeah, Peter, Peter Kreef is, a, is a, a, a great popularizer of all, all, all different kinds of, of, of thinkers. He used to write sh short, short popular introductions to different modern philosophers, but you're, you're, you're right, there's that. Uh, if you look in the libraries and ask a reference librarian to help you, especially if you go to a Catholic library or university and you get get a hold of a reference librarian, say, would you would you direct me to the part of the library that has to do with the thought of St. Thomas? And if you look at that section of the library and start poking around, you'll 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 come across some of these more basic introductions. Uh, let's see another another person who wrote an introduction to St. Thomas, uh, Ralph McInerney. Uh, he, he wrote an, an, one or more, uh, more than one introduction of the thought of St. Thomas. Um, and I, I know one introduction in particular had to do with Thomas's ethics. Um, but uh, he tried to bring things also down to a, to a basic level. But if, if, you, if you find the right section of the library and start rooting around, you, you, can, you can find different uh, different introductions. Jacques Maritain was another Frenchman contemporary of Jolson who tried to popularize the th thought of St. Thomas, but he's not a, a particularly easy person to read. So I was interested in this Bertrand Russell, as I understand, he tried to prove we only know what's going on in our own minds and nothing else. And that, to me, doesn't truly relate directly to what we would call relativism today, where, you know, there's your truth and there's my truth. But, you know, I mean, that seems very popular. And Pope Benedict, before he, just before he was elected, I think, or else right after, said this is our real, real concern in this age. Yeah, I don't think that was Russell's primary point when he was doing that. Um, and even one of his defenders, who was very much influenced by Russell, named A.J. Ayer uh, in, in, in England, said, you know, at the end of his, towards the end of his life, in one of his last philosophical books that had to do with human knowledge and its limit, its scopes, and so on, and he, he says, Bertrand Russell got into this peculiar theory <laughs> that all we literally know is what's going on in our brains. <laughs> R Russell thought he had a good argument. His, his argument to a lot, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people would accept the assumption that he made. What, what I'm seeing right now exists right now as I'm seeing it. And Russell said, okay, let's push that to the limit. <laughs> and if you push that to the limit, you get into trouble. So all I was trying to do was to convince you that um, even though I have no problems with 
science, scientific discoveries, scientific laws, the fact that it takes light time to, to pass uh, through the air. Aristotle and Thomas both thought that the transmission of light was instantaneous, but that it was something they couldn't, they couldn't prove one way or the other. They just thought it seemed more reasonable to think that way. I have no problem with, with, with all the science. The, the problem is the assumptions, the philosophical assumptions you make when you go to use science. And I, I think that Russell made a disastrous assumption there. But I don't think he was arguing specifically for relativism. Thank you very much, Dr. Flippen. Boy, you're welcome. <laughs> Glad to confuse you any time of the day. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.